I want you to think back to almost exactly a year ago. All of a sudden, one name, one product really, was everywhere. It's called ChatGPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, and it's fully powered through artificial intelligence. This project from the OpenAI Research Lab can write essays and carry on convincing written conversation. It took Netflix more than three years to reach one million users, but it took ChatGPT just five days. Techies everywhere short-circuiting with excitement. ChatGPT is a disruptor and a game-changer for business communication. Computers have achieved a sort of creativity. Conversational AI is a tool to help us learn faster, apply it in the right way, and there are billions to be made. We were talking about ChatGPT. You were talking about ChatGPT. Your not-very-online relatives were talking about ChatGPT. And According to Karen Howe, that moment was an inflection point. When ChatGPT came out, it was the first consumer-facing demonstration of really powerful AI capabilities that suddenly made everyone in the public, all policymakers, everyone's mom, grandma, like, you know, uncle, suddenly come online to the idea that this technology is a really big deal and it's going to have massive cascading effects all around society. The reason I wanted to talk to Karen is that she knows more about AI than probably any other reporter in the country. She's covered the industry for years and is now writing a book about it. She says the release of ChatGPT changed everything for the company that created it, OpenAI, and for every other AI company that hadn't yet brought something like it to the public. And in that moment, it was also a huge glaring red flag to every other company within the world that has the resources to to develop this technology to hurry up quick Hmm. and start doing something similar. It also helps explain why it was international news when OpenAI's board ousted CEO Sam Altman and he then clawed his way back. Because this company, more than any other, has upended what Silicon Valley means when it says AI. And so in the moment when OpenAI releases ChatGPT, it basically changed the entire game. It's changed um, suddenly all of the, uh, basically the orientation of the entire tech industry to consolidate around this singular idea of let's try to use this technology to build this kind of chatbot-like thing or to build so-called large language models. And that's really not happened before. We haven't seen in, in the entire trajectory of AI development, we haven't seen a moment that so quickly made everyone start doing the same exact thing. But, and this is important, there was a catch, a contradiction baked into the founding of OpenAI. The organization began as a nonprofit with a mission to help humanity. Only a small part of the company was supposed to make a profit, and a capped one at that. The board, however, maintained the priorities of the nonprofit. Karen says a fight between the two sides was almost inevitable. What's interesting about this whole fiasco that happened is I'm of the belief that the board kind of did its job. Like, that's exactly what it was set up to do. The whole reason for this kind of weird mechanism at the time was essentially like an elaborate way to try to self-regulate. So the board of directors, their job description was, in fact, if they believed at some point that um, 
Sam Altman or whatever the CEO, whoever the CEO was, was leading the company astray from the original mission to create technology that was beneficial to everyone, that the board would then have the right to fire them. Um, and it's sort of interesting. I think there's a there's a lot of rightful criticism about the way that the board went about it. But I do think that the fact that they did it itself should not be criticized because that's what they signed up for. That's what everyone signed up for. And in fact, Sam Altman himself was a key author of this legal structure that gave the board the power to do this to him. But now that the dust has settled, Sam Altman clearly won this fight. He's back in control. The original board is gone. And this idea of self-regulation in the AI business seems almost painfully naive, considering the amount of money at stake. Today on the show, the OpenAI fiasco is a morality play for the industry, one with massive stakes for all of us as AI development races ahead. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Karen told you about the structure of OpenAI, a nonprofit with a for-profit wing. That wing, the money-making side, brought ChatGPT to market and attracted $13 billion in investment from Microsoft. But OpenAI has more than just a split structure. There's also an ideological split among the people who work there and in the field at large. You can call them the techno-optimists and the AI doomers. The techno-optimist camp would argue that the best way to do this is to build products that people love using, to put them in the hands of these people, and then to observe, collect data, and refine based on feedback how to improve this technology moving forward. And the, the argument is also that if you commercialize these technologies and you get the money um, from commercializing, that then you have more resources to kind of conduct the kind of research you need to do in order to add safeguards, add guardrails to the technology. The more doomer or existential risk camp, um, their version of this argument is the best way to create a better AGI is to make sure that you study it very intensely before it is ever released to the world, that you should project as much as possible what are actually the harms that this technology could cause, and then try to build in these safeguards before it is put into the hands of people. And you could see how there's sort of, uh, these these are sort of both valid arguments in that there's like a grain of um, of reason in both of them that on one hand, one group is saying, no, we shouldn't be putting dangerous technology um, into the wild. And the other one is saying, well, how will we know what the dangers are until we put it into the wild? Um, but this, I, I should add that they've become so extreme, like the beliefs around these two different camps have become so extreme and they're so deeply laced into people's identities and their like value systems that I think 
the clash that happened was not necessarily the middle of the road people who kind of can see, oh yeah, I could see both sides. It's like people who have like their entire life basically is now wrapped into either the the boomer or the doomer um, side of things. I'm remembering back when we had you on this show in 2020 and you actually spelled out some of this potential conflict and now it has come to a head. What does the shape of this company look like now? Now that Sam Altman is once again the CEO and he's got a bunch of of board members, new board members on board. Yeah, back in 2020, when I first profiled OpenAI, I mean, it was still really uncertain how much OpenAI would end up starting to commercialize products because it started as a nonprofit. It started as a very academic research environment. And I went to profile them just as they received the first $1 billion investment from Microsoft. And they had just a few months earlier created this strange legal structure. And at the time, the leadership did a lot of careful messaging to employees saying, don't worry, we're not going to commercialize. There's no pressure to do so. You know, Microsoft was the best partner for investing in us because they're really aligned with our values and they'll allow us to continue being largely academic and research-oriented. And then there ended up being a moment when the first kind of, maybe we should just commercialize this one thing and make a little bit of money so that we can have more resources to you know, continue doing the safety research that some of the people in the company are very concerned about. And then that became, and maybe we should hire some people to support that development that are more oriented towards commercialization, like sales teams, like um, product, like user interface engineers. And then like, maybe we should try it with another product and so on and so forth until it kind of slid all the way to where we are today, which is, you could argue that OpenAI is the most aggressive company in terms of commercialization. Now, the company is launching product after product, not just ChatGPT, but the image maker Dolly and a whole host of services for AI startups. They recently hosted a conference for developers in which they touted a platform to create custom AI chatbots. Think of it like an app store for your own ChatGPT. We're, we're thrilled to introduce GPTs. GPTs are tailored versions of ChatGPT for a specific purpose. You can build a GPT, a customized version of ChatGPT, for almost anything, with instructions, expanded knowledge, and actions, and then you can publish it for others to use. It's sort of the most extreme Silicon Valley of Silicon Valley <laughs> um, ideas. Um, it's sort of like the recreation of the Apple App Store or the the like turning of a product into a platform. Like all of these like really um, deeply seated Silicon Valley methods. Before the firing of Altman happened, like. OpenAI was starting to become widely criticized as, what is your nonprofit board even doing? Hmm. Like, what is it there for? Because the for-profit arm was essentially just taking the lead and just seemed to look exactly like any other startup, any other company. Um, and now that Altman has been reinstated, I mean, 
arguably he is going to make a huge effort to try and make sure he never has this kind of vulnerability again where he can get fired by the board again. Um, and so there were a lot of, I mean, the, clearly the board and um, the opening executives and Altman during this like window of time had huge negotiations, very tense negotiations about how to actually create some kind of viable exit plan that everyone agreed with. And ultimately, I think Altman ended up giving quite a lot of concessions in that he's no longer on the board. So that is one sign that he doesn't have like full um, power in this scenario, in like the new kind of iteration of OpenAI. But certainly he is going to try like every other possible way in addition to the board to continue pushing ahead his own vision and and making sure that he can continue to pursue what he wants, whether that's commercialization or not. Do do you think it's fair to say that in this reorganization, he now has more power? I would guess yes, but a lot of it is going to come down to how much these board members turn out to ally with him. The new ones. The new ones. And I think Altman would not have agreed to these board members and for himself to step off the board if he didn't think that they were big potential allies. But we won't really know. I mean, up until the board fired Altman, I also thought that the previous board was pretty allied with Altman. So it was pretty surprising to me that they would end up doing an action as drastic as this. Although, again, it was in their job description. Um, But, you know, we won't really know whether these new board members might take a similar approach until they actually act on it. Um, But for, for the time being, the best guess is that Altman wouldn't have allowed them on the board unless he personally felt very confident that he would be able to turn them into allies if they aren't already. One of the reasons I'm asking that question is because we don't still know kind of the fine-grained details of why the original board fired him. They put out a statement that seemed sort of dramatic in the moment, and we have these competing camps that you've illustrated. But, you know, there's always the possibility that, that more details could drip out. And so it makes me wonder whether we should expect those little breadcrumbs to come in the next few months or if, nope, door is closed, let's just move on with this new version of the company. I think if we see details coming out, it will have to be from the board, the previous board, or the current board, actually, that made the decisions. Because ultimately, the previous board never communicated to employees why they made the decisions that they did. The employees themselves are also in the dark. And of course, I don't think Altman is going to himself reveal, or 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 who knows, maybe he would reveal because it might be strategically savvy. But we're not going to find out from employees. There's only a small, a tiny handful of people that truly know the reasons. Um, and it will be up to them to speak. And I think right now, my sense from speaking with sources is that the board and executives and Altman in particular are really trying to project a sense of stability because it's not just ultimately about, you know, what his image and what the public thinks of him, but also 
OpenAI obviously has Microsoft as a huge investor. Right. They put $13 billion into this. Exactly. So there's there's just a lot of incentives right now for everyone to project stability and unity and to give this impression that everything is fine and we're going to continue chugging along. And that was a weird blip. But, you know, ultimately, (laughs) we could see more details dripping out as, uh, as things maybe settle. When we come back, what the AI doomers are really afraid of. You know, I wonder what this episode says to the rest of the AI industry about safety and how to think about safety around AI in general, large language models in particular. Are are they looking at it in that way or are they looking at it as a fascinating boardroom drama? I think a lot of how the tech industry sees this episode, um, at least the commentary that I've been seeing from people within the industry is sort of that it is a very clear example of the way that Silicon Valley has become deeply polarized by these ideologies at large. Um, It's not just OpenAI that has these competing ideologies, just within the talent pool of AI research, within the talent pool of engineers in Silicon Valley, you see this split becoming more and more apparent. And so I would guess that many of these tech companies are a little bit more worried. It's a little bit more on their radar as we need to be careful about keeping these ideologies in check because if there are people, um, you know, if there are people that are deeply fearful of the existential risk of these technologies that are going to, in their eyes, rabble rouse and um, create disruptions that could spook our investors, spook our customers, that would be really bad for business. And ultimately, all the other tech companies that are not open AI are driven by business and profit and shareholders. I think, though, that like an even bigger lesson to be learned is sort of for everyone that doesn't exist in Silicon Valley and in the tech industry, which is just that self-regulation doesn't exist. I mean, hmm. the fact that this deeply over-engineered, <laughs> carefully orchestrated legal structure was an experiment in like the, the, the best possible way that you could self-regulate and it still fell apart. I mean, that's a, that's a huge damning sign that this whole... I mean, we've been talking about this for so long that self-regulation doesn't work, but this is yet, yet another example, a cherry on on the top of just mounting evidence. And I hope that policymakers are aware of this. I hope that consumers and the general public become more aware that, oh, wait, this is actually just, um, in a sense, another manifestation of Silicon Valley. And AI is not just this organic technology that emerges, but it's actually created by people with particular beliefs and particular agendas. Um, And that that can help inform them in making better uh, decisions as consumers about how much they want to incorporate this technology into their lives, into their work, into their, like for doctors, into their medical practices or for teachers into their classrooms. And I think that that is like the bigger lesson that I hope people can all take away. I wonder if you could articulate for someone who is outside of Silicon Valley, who doesn't think about this on a constant basis, what those fears are about. What does the existential risk 
look like? What does the day-to-day risk look like? I think that the existential risk fears are based on this hypothetical that if we do believe that these systems are intelligent, which is already entering kind of a quagmire because... Right, like what is intelligence? And, yeah. yeah, there is no scientific consensus around what intelligence is. But if we believe that these systems are intelligent, digital intelligences are just, they're faster at learning, faster at combining knowledge, knowledge in quotes, than, than humans. Um, so humans, when we have knowledge and we learn, um, it's sort of a very inefficient process. It takes us many, many years to get like a proper education. And then when we talk to each other, we don't really combine knowledge very effectively because people will have disagreements or different interpretations about things. But with a digital quote-unquote intelligence, they would be able to learn from data like within a few months and then just transfer the data that they trained on and the things that they learned instantly. Um, And so under this premise or under this belief that this is true, then you could see why it could be very scary because you would be able to quickly create a super intelligence that is smarter than humans on many different tasks and could not just be smarter, but outsmart humans and start to manipulate people and um, create sort of a life of its own where its objective function is to perpetuate its own existence. And if that means humans get in the way of that, then destroy humans. I mean, again, this is like an extremely hypothetical scenario and is based on a lot of different assumptions about what intelligence is, whether or not it's successfully being created within these digital technologies, and also whether or not um, these so-called digital intelligences could even act in the physical world. Because again, they're digital and part of the reason why humans can do things in the world and have potentially dangerous consequences in the world is because we have physical bodies and we walk around in three-dimensional space. The other camp kind of uh, of people that are concerned about risks of AI is often, they often call it like short-term risks or, or yeah. risks that are in the here and the now. And these people are concerned about the things, the AI technologies that we already have and what they we've already seen, like real examples that we've already seen of ways that they break down and can cause harm to people. Um, so for this group, they're like, we shouldn't even be talking about what intelligence is and whether or not we're recreating it. We should just talk about like the literal things that we have and observe the fact that self-driving cars have killed pedestrians and observe that facial recognition systems have been involved in the wrongful arrest of uh, Black men in the U.S. and uh, observe that there have been hiring algorithms developed that don't hire women because they learn over time that that is sort of the best way to maximize for certain types of traits that don't necessarily represent what uh, we need to maximize as a society. Um, and so that kind of camp is is much more, um, I mean, there's a lot of tension between these camps because you could see that for the existential risk people, they would argue that like you need to project further into the future than what we see now. And that when you project into the future, of course, it's going to be hypothetical. Whereas the people that are focused on the short-term risks are like, actually, if we focused on solving the problems with AI today, 
that would naturally get us to better AI in the future and to overlook the things that are happening today um, and just project hypothetically, you're not actually going to get anywhere meaningful because you're not actually recognizing uh, how AI literally interfaces with society. A lot of what you're talking about reminds me of the way products, any tech product, is a product of the people who built it their smarts, their biases, you know, what they're deeply versed in, what they're not. And these are phenomenally complex and powerful systems. When I think about the new board of OpenAI, it is all men. Does that give you pause that there is so much power in the hands of such a small group of people? It gives me pause whether or not they're all men or not. Say more. It's kind of interesting that they are all men because I would say if there had been like one woman on the board, I mean, even before there were two women on the board, if there had been one woman on the board, if there had been one non-white person on the board, that it almost would have given a false sense of security and a false Hmm. sense of representation because it would belie the fact that there are still only three of them. <laughs> and that fundamentally is the bigger problem. I, like, And for me, it's just, I do think that obviously it is problematic that these three people do not seem to represent the diversity of society, but could they have ever? Um, and I, I think that is the bigger question. And I hope that actually the fact that there is no representation on the board kind of accelerates that bigger discussion. You've wrote this other story that I have been thinking about. It was back in October, and and the headline was, we don't actually know if AI is taking over everything. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I recently was in San Francisco. You get off the plane, and it's like every other poster or billboard is for an AI company, like literally everything. And if you step back from that, it seems harder to define just how transformative AI is or isn't, because, as you wrote about, very little of it is transparent about how it does what it does. How can we know how much AI is impacting our lives already? We don't. And this is a huge problem in that it is very much driven by the fact that AI development is now happening primarily in secrecy within these companies that have huge incentives to continue keeping that secrecy because of competitive advantages and also because, you know, OpenAI says, oh, we can't tell you because it would be dangerous to society (laughs) um, for people to know this. Um, I mean, what we do know is that, okay, I'll, I'll nuance it a bit in that we do know that AI is having a huge impact on society. What we don't know is whose AI is the most pervasive and where they are pervasive, which is a very important detail because it matters if OpenAI's AI is everywhere or if another kind of AI is everywhere because that helps us scrutinize, understand, and hold accountable 
ultimately the developers of the technology that are impacting us. If we don't know what AI our doctor is using, what AI our teacher is using, what AI our lawyer is using, we can't know how much to trust a particular result. Uh, We don't know who to contest if something is wrong. And like regulators fundamentally then can't create rules that make sense um, and apply to specific cases of how this technology is used, the, the the entire supply chain of how it's used. So that that is, I think, the the more fundamental problem is is the who. We just don't know the who, and your life could be entirely run by OpenAI algorithms, and you would not know that, and Whoa. that is a problem. And yet, I think if you are a person whose life does not directly touch the tech industry or Silicon Valley, you might be thinking, this is really complicated. It seems too hard to get my head around right now. What should you be thinking about so that you don't find yourself in a situation where AI is deeply enmeshed in your life before you realized it? I think asking lots of questions um, and keeping your eyes open to the possibility that AI could be used in many, many ways uh, that you don't necessarily know about. If you are a parent, you can definitely, um, you know, ask questions with the school, with your kids' teachers about, are you using AI in the classroom? How are you using it in the classroom? Who are you using? Um, And if you are, I mean, anyone who lives in a city with a local government could be asking their local government officials, like, how are you thinking about AI? How are you potentially going to acquire some of these tools? In which agencies, in which processes are you going to incorporate these tools? And what kind of accountability mechanisms are you going to put in place? I think that kind of just speaking up and observing um, and asking those those questions to map out for yourself how your per, your life might be um, affected by these technologies is, is a really critical first step to then figuring out whether or not you want them to be a part of them, a part of your life. Um, and I think also just in it, if for like consumers, I mean, a lot of people now use ChatGPT, a lot of people use Bard, a lot of people um, use Anthropic's Claude. Um, I also think just like thinking more about um, how you actually want to incorporate this technology and like any other products that we use, how we want to vote with our money, which companies do we want to give that money to, um, and to put pressure when, with that money, um, when a company does not actually align with our expectations of being a good actor in the world. Karen Howe, thank you so much for your insight and your time. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Karen Howe is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and is writing a book for Penguin Press about the AI industry. And that is it for the show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. 
join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. It also makes a great holiday gift for the news hound in your life. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. 